Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. I'm a feminist, but when I was in the passport office earlier getting my biometrics taken for my visa, getting my fingerprints taken, and when the guy started being super talkative and somewhat flirty with me, instead of being like, hey, could you not and do your job? I was just kind of like, don't kick me out of the country. (laughs) 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 What what are you meant to do? Like, do you know what I mean? I didn't know to be like, hey, hey, could you? Yeah, I know you just found out that I'm a comedian, but could you please shut the fuck up and uh, take my photo? I mean, was this guy, where was he at the passport office? Yeah, he was the fingerprint guy. I feel like the appointment is supposed to last for like 20 minutes. I was there for like 40 minutes. I think he was just like chatting. He was just chatting. I was like, I'll entertain this conversation. It was insane. At one point, he asked me if I thought that Beyonce or Solange was more attractive. And I managed to wiggle out of it by saying Jay-Z. <laughs> it was insane. <laughs> That's a double I'm a feminist bot, Kima. I blame him a lot because he shouldn't be floating on his job, especially when his job is, you know, you might feel like, oh, is this going to affect my visa? But I'm a feminist, but also you are looking extra fine today. Extra fine. (laughs) I did lean into it as well, but I wish I didn't lean into it because it didn't make the appointment go by faster. You are glowing. That's no excuse. I'm not victim blaming, but you are glowing. My feminine wiles. Your hair's looking fine. I'm not. I'm not accusing you of feminine wiles. Uh, I mean, you have uh, them coming out the wazoo. But I okay. I had sex recently. Fine, fine. <laughs> I had sex last night. It's fine. Uh, yes, there is something uh, pouring out of me. Okay. All right. So is that that's that's we've come to the nub of it now. <laughs> That's that's why, okay. You've got the glow, yes. the post-coital glow. It's true. I came, okay. <laughs> okay, great. I'm a feminist, but can this whole episode really be about Benefer? J-Lo and Ben Affleck, please. Has something happened to Oh, okay. Ben so Ben Affleck J-Lo. and J-Lo have got back together. That's right. They've got back together and they are posing in poses that they posed in the first time around in the noughties. So there's a famous... Shot of J Lo. Yeah, cup in the butt, cup in the butt. Yeah. So our amazing guest Maridol's just chipped in, and she's asked a salient question that I think a lot of our listeners, not a lot of our listeners, but some of our listeners may be also asking: Mm. Has something happened with Ben Affleck and J Lo? Yes, Mm. they've got back together. They're snogging in public. It was J Lo's fifty-second birthday, and she was recreating 
sort of classic J-Lo Ben Affleck images from when they were together in the noughties. Paparazzi times. Including in the music video Jenny from the Block, there's a famous image of he's got his hand on her butt and she's lying face down on a boat. Mm. Um, They recreated that. But then my friend Raven Smith honed in on his face and said he's not enjoying this. And then there was a pulled back shot where you could see the photographer taking the picture because it sort of just looked like not a selfie because obviously their arms went out, but someone else on the boat, yeah, one of their friends, yeah. just took it and was like, oh, this is a cute moment. But it turned out to be a hide photographer. Oh, fascinating. I, I think this needs its whole own Guilty Feminist episode is what I'm suggesting. It's interesting to me because what, like the relationship, I think the stuff around Britney Spears especially, it's kind of highlighted the relationship between like the paparazzi and these uh, photographers and these folks. And um, yeah, I don't know. Is it bad? Like I'm a feminist, but I enjoyed the photo more when I thought it was a sneaky. <laughs> now that I know it's like one of their friends, I'm kind of like... Sorry, that's you guys are gross. <laughs> <laughs> now you know it's all planned for you. But in a way, if you enjoyed the photo at all, surely you're going to enjoy it now. You know, effort was put in. That's Lighting true, and that sort of. people care, and that they wanted us sure. to experience that joy. They cared enough to trick you into thinking this is just yeah. a joyful, playful moment. So yeah. I'm saying. I thought his hand was on her butt for hours, and that photo just happened to have been captured. I feel I'm a feminist, but Kima, I'm now judging you as slightly naive. Oh, I mean, (laughs) forgive me. I just found myself transported back to the days of yesteryear when I also didn't give a shit about them being together. (laughs) You do, and I'm a feminist, but. (laughs) No, okay. I'm a feminist, but I recently started seeing someone new and we're out to dinner and she said to me, she said, hey, I'm the man. And I said, yeah, there is no the man. Like, we're both here. Like, neither one of us is the man. Mm -hmm. And then she said, yeah, I know, but like, I'm the man. And instead of like fighting that, I was just like, oh, well, I guess I'm the little lady. (laughs) 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 Like, oh, okay. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay, sir. (laughs) I guess I'll just have to lay down. (laughs) Enjoy playing with the binary. Yeah, I was like, we, we know what it is, but thank you for saying who you feel like you are in this dynamic. And, you know, h- here we are. And let's just say that uh, I've really enjoyed being uh, a little lady. Mm. I'm a feminist, but I predict Schwimmer and Aniston to be the next reunited couple from Days wow. of Yore. And what? I believe they hinted at it. In the Friends reunion episode when they said, oh, we had a huge crush on each other in season one. Why would they tell us that? We couldn't do anything about it because we were both with people then. But are they with people now? No, no, they're not. Neither of them with people. Why are they telling us that? They're telling us that because if you're in your 50s, you want a huge revival. What do you do? You get back together, fulfill everyone's expectations. Everyone's like, oh, my God, you're our favorite. You're the greatest of all time. You're the good. So I am predicting a brief liaison between Schwimmer and Aniston. Now, I don't know if these relationships are real. I don't know if they're publicity stunts. I don't know if they're a mix. 
where you think have some sex, make some money, sell some records, have three movies out on Netflix. I don't know, but I'm predicting a Schwimmer Aniston double act. I was in the shops um, earlier and like uh, these stores, I don't know who says what trends are. I don't know who started it, but in all of the like 18 to 30s shops right now, there's this like 70s trend happening. And I feel like when in doubt, just take it back, baby. You know, and that's what they're doing. And, uh, you know, you just go for it. Why not? Celebrities of your. Yeah. Hey, maybe Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera will get back together. I mean, it wasn't a good idea the first time, but people are going retro. Why not? Well, Schwimmer and Aniston never got their moment. They said they only ever kissed on screen. They never got their hand on the butt photo. So I'm going to say there's going to be a second Jenny from the block. Yes. Hooking up. With an old friend. Yeah. I'm a feminist, but since uh, the woman I'm seeing told me that she was the man, <laughs> I've been feeling quite like Femi. And um, she's having like an event later this week. And I've bought like dresses for the first time in several years. And I'm like, maybe I just needed all this time with someone to show up and tell me that I was not the man. Oh. I don't know what's happening. It's a mess. I'm a mess, but I'm very excited to let my legs out for a walk. I'm so jealous of all this Gen Z open door fluidity, I'm androgyny so playing up and down the scale with these you know, with gender expression. It's so awesome. And I, I don't know why. I don't need to be jealous. I could do it. Yeah. I could be bold. I could be Come bold. On. Victor Victoria, girl. I might go a little bit more. Maybe I'll go, I'll try a tie. The thing is, <laughs> I've got <laughs> hips and a bum. Maybe but, I'll try a tie. Yeah. I'm saying but I might like, try a tie. All kinds of people got hips. All kinds of people be having hips all the time. Okay. <laughs> You ever seen a cis man with a giant badunkadunk? Come on now. Love a little cheeks on a chap. <laughs> look. Okay. Cheeks all right. on a chap, baby. I might I might try an androgynous look. I cut my hair sort of shorter and chicer. I might put a little, you know, slide in it and make it look a little bit like a 1920s flapper and then yeah. do that. Uh, put a little do that tiny look. put a tiny mustache. Have a, a kind of Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> do you think I could do a drag king? I think the question is why haven't you already? See, I think what's fascinating about the whole uh, situation is even though I'm fully aware that there is no the man, do you know what I mean? For some reason, like after challenging it, I'm just, I'm just like, oh. Oh, and I'm just like, I'm a delicate little flower, and it's insane. I don't know what that is. I'm excited. Can you please send me pictures of all your dresses? Definitely. I will do a fashion show. I'm a feminist, but the news that Simone Biles has withdrawn from the Olympics when she is the number one in the world is a decision I support as a feminist and a woman and as someone who is concerned 
for mental health issues. Oh my gosh, yeah, what happened? Why did she withdraw? I don't know the news. No one tells me the she's news anymore. She's a gymnast, anymore. but she's the sort of secret weapon. Yeah, she she's from Houston. She's incredible. There you go. So she withdrew because she said, there's too much pressure on me. I don't trust my mental health and I also don't trust I'm not going to fall when there's so much pressure on me. I've just decided to pull out. Oh, and she's the girl. best in the world. So this is, I support this as a feminist and a woman, as someone who is concerned for mental health issues, but also... As a fan the, of gymnastics. But also the best in the world just said, oh, fuck it, it's too much. And that made me really feel like, oh, thank mm. God. Thank yeah. God someone else yeah. can't cope. And someone so amazing yeah. can't cope. The, the best in the world can't cope. That's just made me, given me a free pass forever to just go, no. Ah, it's too much. But too honestly, much it's interesting. And I love, I love seeing this recently with like Naomi Osaka as well. Uh, these, you know, amazing, incredible, hardworking people who, you know, I think previously have been driven to, you know, unhealthy places mentally and physically, especially gymnasts. Mm-hmm. They do really weird stuff to the bodies of gymnasts. Um, yeah, so for them to say, actually, no, thank you. I'm going to prioritize myself over this country's idea of victory, you know, over this, like, athletic imperialism or whatever, you know, like, I think it's so cool. And to say, I don't need to do this. What I need to do is to take care of myself. Ooh, impeccable. And she got to light the Olympic flame. So cool. She got to light the flame. I love that. I love that so much. From a variety of bedrooms and kitchens via Zoom, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Kima Bob, and our very special guest, Maridal Wadwa, talking about creating your own world. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and our hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis-White, with me is Kima Bob, and we are talking about creating our own world. So Kima, have you been doing any work lately in building your own world? Because I feel like Ugh. Benefer has. Don't mean to go on about Ben Affleck and Jennifer Le- Lopez again, but they've been sort of reinventing an old world with a series of staged pictures. Yeah. <laughs> and they've yeah. been like, well, we create the universe and everyone wants that to be true. So we're we're all buying in, whether it is or it isn't. It's not relevant, really. It's just like, I think- <laughs> yeah, I would like, I'd like a bit of nostalgia now. I'd like a Take bit of sentimentality. Back, exactly. I think everyone's a bit over the present. Uh, and they're just like, can I be transported into like the naughties? Uh, and specifically into some couple that I remember being weirdly invested in when they made Geely, but otherwise not so much. Not so much. Uh, so have you done any uh-huh. work on building your own uh, world? I have, actually. I think um, it's an interesting position to be in, um, being a person who works in comedy, a privileged position. I feel like a lot of people look at us and say, oh, you must be living the dream or whatever. And oftentimes we live in something. Um, And I think more recently it's um, become important to me to put good things out in the world and also to, I don't know, actually take care of myself. I think for a long time Mm -hmm. I was um, struggling so much 
for not only like financial security but also to be seen and acknowledged as like good at what I do that I was sacrificing you know my well-being and now that I find myself in a more healthy place um both in recognition and in I can pay my rent oh my god did I tell you I used to hold like rent strikes with my flatmates because like we couldn't afford our rent sometimes and so our flat was pretty fucked up so we'd just pick one issue to highlight to the landlord if one of us was like short on rent and we'd be like oh you want the money we want to not have this leak um, oh was, my god epic times um, so now I'm not having to do that <laughs> um, the fact that you're not having to withhold rent for a number of days while a landlord fixes a leak yeah like is we want a refrigerator that functions properly how about that jeremy that's his actual name um and <laughs> and um now i find myself in a place where i've not gotten over that habit of uh saying yes to everything or scrounging and I find myself not so connected to who I am or what I actually want and I find myself mm. reacting to what people want from me have you faced this yes I am someone who is very reactive and I oh this has come along oh, do you can you do this would you do this you know and I'm yeah. like well that sounds fun or I need the money or I you know want to help this charity or you know yeah. and I find myself saying yes to too much all the time my post-pandemic world that I'm recreating is sort of how to ease back into social life while keeping the things I was doing, the new routines around exercise and eating nutritiously and resting properly Ooh. and sleeping a full night's oh my sleep. Gosh, yes. The real world's eating into those things now. Yeah. And of course the real world is welcome, but I'm trying to keep a balance so I still do those things. Like I'm almost like terrified to let go of all my exercise commitments and things like that you I know, just to that. be more reasonable about it you know not yeah. to be like every morning it has to be this da, 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 da. and I got sick last week and I not no COVID did the test mm. it was just a sore throat but it was a really sore throat and I went to bed for a couple of days and let myself rest and just thought you don't have to be this routine and I think the routine was the thing that was keeping me like feeling like I've got a thing I've got something I've got routine and I've never yeah. been routined but also and so it's now, quite grounding I think and I feel like a lot of people have taken on healthier practices I've taken on a more mindful way of being and over the past couple of weeks that's gone to shit so, <laughs> <laughs> mindfulness. No what's, what's happened? Now we're allowed I, out. I have no that's idea been what's replaced going by on drinking. anymore. Yeah. yeah, that's been mindfulness has been replaced by a drinking habit. I worked um, up my meditation habit from non-existent to like a good twenty minutes every morning, feeling like, yeah, now I'm ready for the day. And over the past week or so, since I've started allowing things to happen in the world. I'm struggling to focus for like 10 minutes. It's mm. it's nuts. And I'm just like, I think if my post-pandemic world looked like all the wholesome things I started to do for myself during my lockdown world and then like was able to like healthily combine that with like existing in a safe way. Ooh, yes. it's yes. just a bit sudden, isn't it? It really is. It really is. And can I say the experience we had on Saturday, we went to the Soho Theatre, 
mm-hmm. to do Shedinburgh, which is the sort of last year when the Edinburgh Festival couldn't happen at all. Mm. Francesca Moody decided to do a version of it in a shed that could be live streamed and there was no audience. But this year at the Soho Theatre, there could be an audience and we were allowed to have 80% occupancy. And it was noon on a Saturday. We only had a few days to advertise it because it was kind of last lovely. Minute. And I was so nervous. I was like, what if people don't come out anymore? What if this? What if this? What if this? And what is the because world? we were in a very privileged position of being able to advertise Guilty Feminist shows and people knew that we were, you know, it was a community feel to it. So if they came along, we would, you know, put together a bill that they didn't necessarily know that you were going to be on, but they knew somebody who reflected their value set would be saying something that they would want to learn about and doing some comedy they would want to hear, that they didn't need to feel like anxious that suddenly the comedy was going to take a turn that was going to make them feel uncomfortable. So we were in a very privileged position of of people wanting to come out and be with us. So I was nervous about it. And also because I've really enjoyed the socially distanced shows we've been able to do, but it's not the same as having a full house because, you know, so when I went out to the theater and there were cameras between us and the audience, so I was like, how's this going to be? And when I walked out, it was as full a house as we were legally allowed to have. And I said something and the audience laughed and then I said something else and the audience laughed and it was like this old symbiosis mm. that I have not experienced since I would say February last year because even March last year, although it was amazing, we were all aware we should really be indoors and this was headed towards a lockdown. Mm. So February was the last time I felt super free with an audience. Oh. And honestly, my experience on Saturday was, you know, I you know I'm not a religious person anymore, but it was almost spiritual because – it was like a part of myself I did not believe in anymore. I'd mm. forgotten. I didn't really believe in it anymore. Came to life because oh. it was like surfing with the audience. Like the audience give you and you give them and they give you. And, and so, so even weird. those shows we did last summer outside, which I loved and they were wonderful, we knew we were only allowed out to be in a quad for 10 minutes, then get back in. And so it wasn't the feeling that I had on Saturday. Honestly, I think I felt talented for the first time in a year and a half. Nearly. Well, being a performer is such a weird thing because I think a lot of people will um, literally will look at us and say, oh, well, you're in such an uh, empowered place, right? You're, doing, you're living what you want to do. You're living the dream. But it's interesting because I feel like um, some people at their job, they're able to feel good about it uh, every time they do it you know, or at least, no, I'm competent. This is what I do. Um, And over the past year, that's changed for a lot of people. And at the same time, for I feel just as many people, it hasn't, you know, and our version of employee of the month, we haven't been able to get that kind of feeling. There is no like boss to give us a good job. You know, there's no like promotion. That's like the audience. And can I say, if you came out to any of those shows in the between times, thank you so much for coming out. It meant so much to me. And I did have a wonderful time. It's not that I'm diminishing those shows. I was so grateful for you. And I felt so loved by you. And I felt so in love with you. So if you came out to any of those shows that weren't Soho Theatre, please know that I loved them. And But there was just something about we're out the other side of this and we're allowed an 80% occupancy in like a 400 seater. So that felt super full. And we were just like, it was just something about the element of it. And I honestly, I felt like, oh, it's back and it hasn't left me. And I'm so grateful, but I saw people crying at Latitude as well at the Latitude Festival because they played big audiences and they were, comedians were in tears, hard boiled old school comedians were in tears afterwards going, I played an audience, you know, it was like felt something, there was something about this weekend that felt 
Both shows were outdoors in latitude, of course, but that it felt different this weekend. Yeah. And I, well, I'll I, tell I'm you just what. so grateful for it. The weirdest thing to me was when we had lunch after. And I was just like, uh, uh, like uh, that's, that's what felt real, you know? So we had like the show bit and I was like, whoa, people. And then I was like, hey, do you want to grab a bite? And I was like, oh, we can grab a bite. Like, I just, it's just, it's, 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 it's too real. It's too real. But it's stuff as well that we shouldn't be feeling. And I'm, if you're in Australia and you're suddenly in a lockdown again, I fully apologize. We've been in a lockdown for so long when you guys were out and, you know, look, hopefully we won't be back in again, but we all know that we could. Yeah. So, you know, like this is just me going feels like I've come up from air after being underwater for a very, very long time. So it's a balance between me going, but I still want to do my exercise every day, but I still want to make sure I yeah. eat the regular times. I still want to make sure I don't go to bed at 2 a.m. the way I did last night after suddenly having like, oh, I've got to write this script. I still want to do all those things though. I still want to look after myself. Well, and I think also we need audiences. to to maintain. I think it's really important. And there are things that all of us will have adopted over the past year and they're important to hold on to because like, they're not bad for us now. It's just that we've not done them in this context. And I think the fatigue, it's like pandemic fatigue of just wanting it to be over or wanting to move on. But I think some of those um, healthy habits that we've built for ourselves, they've become safeguards, um, you know, quite good for our sense of mental stability and things of that nature. And um, if we do end up back in a lockdown, you know, those will be our constants. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so tough. It is a big shift. And I think we shouldn't um, look down at ourselves for uh, slipping up because things have just changed quite quickly. Um, and it's scary as well because, like, they could change again. Um, they likely will change again. And so I think I just want to take a moment, I guess, to encourage everyone who's adopted things into their schedule, their life, their routine, while they were more restricted to not let go of them if they were helping you feel better, because they still will. That's very good advice, Kima Bob. You are a wise soul. I'm just an 80-year-old lady in a 27-year-old body. (laughs) You're the Yoda of the guilty feminist, in my opinion. Thank you so much. I prefer to be the baby Yoda, thanks. You were the baby Yoda, but you have better syntax. <laughs> your syntax is flawless. And better your skin. wisdom Your wisdom's just as, <laughs> just as Yoda-y. So, you know, you are the, the new and improved Yoda. An oh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. An Obi-Wan Kimobi. Oh, I love it. I wish I had ever seen those films. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Look, I can I just say also while I'm saying things of sentimental value, if you've ever written to me and I haven't been able to get back to you and, mm. you know, or you've written to me this, I get so many requests for people to come and be on the podcast or people saying, hey, I think so-and-so would make a good guest. And we really do put everyone into the mix and we try and get a good variety. And, you know, we are one podcast. We're not, you know, we're just, we're not the BBC. So it's, it's, we have such limited resources. So I'm so sorry if I've ever disappointed you. I'm so sorry if I haven't got back to you. I hear and see you. If you've ever sent me fan mail and I didn't have your address to write back or I was on tour and I just didn't have the resources or the energy or the bandwidth, I just want to say I appreciate every single one of you, everyone who's ever taken the time to write to me Mm. to suggest a guest, even if we haven't had that person on. We only have 52 shows a year and we probably get offered 
you know, a thousand guests a year. So we, so we, but please keep suggesting people because that's, you know, also how people get through. So thank you for all of your suggestions. Thank you for all your kind words. Thank you for your criticism, which has shaped the show. Thank you for coming out. Thank you if you've never been able to come out, but you've supported us in another way by telling a friend, by rating, reviewing, or subscribing. Um, you know, thank you for everything that you've ever done. And I'm feeling very sentimental at the moment because we are on this precipice of coming back out and Ah. who knows, you know, for how long or it's how, getting real, where we're baby. allowed to go, whether we can tour, where we can tour, oh. all of those things. And but- please keep showing love because it's so greatly appreciated. And I think, like, in a weird way, I've come to learn uh, love. Like, real love is when you give it and with no, you know, real expectation or demand. And the real love that the listenership has shown me over the years has been absolutely incredible and um like besides the amazing conversations that I'm privileged to be a part of by being a part of this platform the community that I found myself a part of of people who care about this podcast um I'm so grateful for are we all gonna cry today is that the vibe I think so well look it's not gonna get any better with our guest in terms of the, the sentimentality and the, because this is somebody who really has created her own world in so yeah. many ways and created an amazing world for other people. Hello, Guilty Feminist. On the 10th and 11th of September, we have two really big, spectacular all singing, all dancing shows at the South Bank Centre. We're at the Queen Elizabeth Hall, 7.30 p.m., Get your tickets now at southbankcenter.co.uk or you can find tickets to anything at guiltyfeminist.com and click through. We will be coming to Australia and New Zealand in October and November. Some of the best shows we've ever done have been in Australia and New Zealand, so we're very, very excited to come back. We will be on the 21st of October in Wellington, 22nd in Christchurch, 23rd in Auckland, 26th in Sydney, 29th in Perth, 31st in Canberra, uh 3rd of november in adelaide the 5th of november in melbourne and the 8th of november in brisbane so get tickets now guiltyfeminist.com if any of the dates have to move we'll transfer your ticket over or refund your money so buy with confidence but do buy as soon as you possibly can because tickets to the australian new zealand shows always sell out and now back to the podcast Um, so we have a little content warning before our guest today because she manages rape crisis centers. So we will discuss this subject very sensitively, but just if that's something you're not feeling today, then, you know, this is a place where you could duck out of the podcast and maybe revisit it at a time when you're feeling more up to it, if that's something you would like to do. Our guest today was born in India, migrated to Scotland to study and soon after started working in women's services, first with BME Women at Shakti Women's Aid, and then at Rape Crisis Scotland on a national helpline. She has managed the Fourth Valley Rape Crisis Centre and is now the CEO at Edinburgh Rape Crisis Centre. She is trans, has two children, a husband, and loves a sari. Please welcome Mariddle Wadwa. Woo! Riddle, riddle, riddle. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I actually have a 
I'm a feminist. Oh, please. Oh, my gosh, yes. And I had to work really hard to think of one because I'm such a good feminist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I'm a feminist, but I don't think a man's place is in my kitchen. In fact, I'm so bad that uh, my husband is meant to take care of dinner tonight and I gave him so many instructions that he will not be cooking in my kitchen tonight so yeah I don't think a man's place is in my kitchen so you have given him so many instructions he's like you just need to do it yourself you don't trust me Uh uh-huh so my children will be eating other food not food. Is he ordering a delivery? So funny. Is he just ordering them a pizza off delivery because your instructions are so frankly fascistic? I, I, yes. I see. I see. Yes. Well, listen. You know, as I'm a feminist, but go. You know, it can be a lot worse. You've heard Kemas. Impeccable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Impeccable. Um, I love it. Tell me. Yeah. Oh, I'm we the love opposite a, of a that, bus Marilla. in the streets and a bus in the streets. <laughs> so um, I'm going to get fired. More like a boss in the kitchen and a boss when she's bitching. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, baby. <laughs> um, so, Maridal, I am extremely interested in your work in Scotland. You were born in mm-hmm. India, but you migrated to Scotland. What made you start wanting to work in women's services? Um, I don't think there was a plan. Uh, so for any migrant listening, um, we have two here, actually, including me, uh, three of us. Yeah. Um, I, I was I think, born in Australia. Kim was born in yes. America. You were born in India. So three of us. And I think... And we're um, taking over the country, baby. Uh-huh. We didn't vote leave for this. <laughs> oh, <but laughs> um, it happened uh, not deliberately. When I graduated, I did a master's at Edinburgh University. There was a, a job going in at Shakti, uh, and I just completed a degree master's in training, and they needed someone to do some training. It wasn't by design. I just applied for this job. It looked interesting. Um, obviously, I had been around violence. I grew up in a home with domestic abuse, I experienced violence as a trans woman in India. And so it looked like somewhere I wanted to work. And I applied and I got the job. And I just stayed. Like before working in women's services, I used to teach people how to sound American in India in a call center. So it is not by design that I got into this work, but I've stayed by design because in fact I went I moved back to India and then moved back again to work at, at Shakti Women's Aid. Um, wow. Just pause there for a second. You, in <laughs> India, used to teach people how to sound American in call centers. That's so best exotic Marigold Hotel. Do you remember Judy Dench does that? She yes. starts teaching people in call centers to sort of chat to people in Britain on the phone, but she's it. not yes. giving them an accent. Tell us more yes. about that. So this was in the early years of the call center industry. I started working in it in 2000. Mm. And so this was about 2003, 2004, when there was a real pressure to sound like the people from the country that we were in, because I don't think people were fully aware as yet that call centers had moved, that they had left. And in fact, when I did work in call centers, taking calls, I used to work in a call center that provided sort of support 
of finance, you know, like managing the, the bank accounts or the bank cards of people who received food stamps and social security in the U.S. So we spoke mm. to people from across the U.S. And and I, I speak five languages and this is like the funniest. And, we, like, and my name was Louise. I had, you know, we had no understanding of racial politics or, or anything. When people used to tell me, oh, you're finally a white American. I, I didn't understand what they meant. That's like, what so was the meaning funny. Of oh, my gosh. Like, all my colleagues sounded like they all thought we were Mexican, except when they heard me. But one day there was a, a Gujarati speaking woman on the phone and uh, her son was on the phone and I needed to speak to her like a good customer service agent in a bank. Um, and he said, oh, she won't understand you because she doesn't speak English. I said, well, I knew she spoke Gujarati just from her name. And I said, what oh. does she speak? And he said, uh, Gujarati. And I said, oh, I can speak to her in Gujarati. And oh, said, what you, a moment. You can speak to her in Gujarati. And I oh. spoke to her in this, spoke to him in this really good, you know, my, my Zorash, I'm part Zorash. And so this Parsi Gujarati accent and he just put the phone down because he couldn't believe oh my that this, somehow this uh, Louise who sounded from yeah. this, you know, the South, like I had a real Southern drawl. Um, I can't, I can't replicate it anymore. But, oh my gosh. Um, That's just, absolutely incredible. And what a yeah. beautiful moment to share with him as well. Well, he was terrified. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, so you sounded like Friday Night Lights, Southern Hospitality and all. Uh 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 oh my gosh that's incredible i love that like fate destiny i don't know which one is more magical but i love (laughs) that that led you with all your skills and all the languages that you speak to work and like it's it's absolutely incredible because i think a lot of the um best things that happen in our lives they happen like through us and sometimes to us. And uh, I think it's absolutely incredible that you didn't plan to be working where you're working. How long have you been there now? Um, So I've worked in the women's sector now since 2005, late 2005, quite a few years. And when I worked at Shakti Women's Aid, you know, it was eye-opening not just to see and experience, like what does domestic abuse really looked like although I grew up in a home with domestic abuse but to see the to see what it looks like in the Mm -hmm. Scottish context and then the further marginalization of minority ethnic women particularly immigrant women because you know the all the messages were and in at least in the early part of my career you know Scotland was still beginning to talk about domestic abuse and sexual violence a little bit more openly it had sort of stepped out of women's organizations into a little bit more into the mainstream of the public sector. And, and, you know, the message was clearly leave your abuser. You don't have to live with this. Mm -hmm, There's help mm -hmm. for you. And when immigrant women would hear that message and accept that as though we were speaking to them, but when they came out and asked for help, they wouldn't have received it because particularly, uh, Kima, just listening to what you were saying earlier, you probably have no recourse to public funds. And, Mm Um, so, so many of those women with no recourse to public funds would not get any support because their immigration status would stop them from accessing a homeless accommodation, uh, refuge mm, spaces, mm. Um, welfare, all the things that you need to leave a relationship that, mm-hmm. that those really practical, basic needs. 
that most uh, women who, who are not subject to immigration control can access. And while there are some exemptions, uh, there's something called the domestic abuse rule. For most migrant women, that is not accessible. And with Brexit and with you know, the, the rules changing for EU nationals, I'm really afraid that we will see more and more women who don't meet the immigration criteria, who may not have uh, completed or acquired pre-settled status, who will now be denied because their immigration status disallows them from accessing public funds, which means housing yeah. benefit, which means job seekers allowance. All of these things uh, that you might need if you leave, because many women who leave end up being homeless. They end up either not being in employment or losing employment because they've left abusive relationships. So my work in Women's Aid in the early years of my career was around raising awareness about this. And it really transformed me. But I also found a real group of wonderful and mostly immigrant women of color working to change this. And many of us still are, even like 15, 16 years later. But also many of us were qualified to do other things with our lives, but we couldn't mm-hmm. find those, you know, a space and those careers that we trained for because of racism, really, and found ourselves in this organization. So it's a real interesting journey how many of us got there. And for me, it was just luck and coincidence, but it changed my life completely. I love it. I don't know why. It always gets me like so excited and a bit <laughs> of chills because like, we can make plans, yeah, uh-huh. but I feel like plans like rules are often made to be broken, shifted, switched up. Of course. Um, I wonder if you could have planned, you know, a life so beautiful and it sucks that you were like kept out of, you know, what you hoped to do, but where you find yourself is making such an impact. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as a trans woman, I think... Uh, the only plan I had was to be alive uh, for a long time was, you know, I did not want to die. And uh, so anything that has come after that is a real gift and a surprise. And I think like for me, uh, like I'm a huge fan of the Guilty Feminist and you cannot imagine how excited I've been uh, to, ah! to be here. And I was like, uh, I was telling some of my colleagues, like, I think, um, like I may have taken up this job just so that I could get on the guilty feminist. (laughs) (laughs) That's your real I'm a feminist bot. I'm a feminist bot. I started working with women women who had experienced violence in shelters and all sorts of things. So my one hour of fame. (laughs) Because ultimately I wanted to get on the guilty feminist. I mean, that is, that's the greatest I'm a feminist bot of all time, in my opinion. You just, (laughs) We thought we were comedians, and here she comes blowing us out of the water with this nonsense. <laughs> um, it's a really powerful story that sometimes when you're marginalized and you're not being given access to spaces you do want to be in, you end up helping other people who are also excluded from uh, spaces, but then ultimately that can be the most fulfilling thing any human being could do yeah. because you are clearly very engaged and energized by your work now mm-hmm. and you clearly love it, you know, yes. and uh, as well as I assure, I'm sure wishing there was no need for it, yes. but you clearly are very um, 
it, this is a you know something that you have found great purpose in understandably yeah. the shakti women's aid uh center you were working with black and asian women and then you moved to rape crisis scotland on the national helpline uh-huh. what were your experiences there well the helpline is a really incredible place um it is really it's still hard in our society today to talk about sexual violence and the ability to contact somebody and speak anonymously is a very important sometimes first step or sometimes the only step to talk about your experience of sexual violence and then there is a it takes a huge amount of courage to do that to talk about what's happened to you or even actually question whether what happened to you was abuse or not. I think we're still a society that is still not very good at talking about sexual violence, particularly sexual violence that is not rape. Because, you know, like, although I work in a rape crisis center, people think that only if you've experienced rape can you seek support. But actually, I think if you've been harassed on the street, you should be seeking support around this because, you know, like, there is no hierarchy of violence. Uh, It is Mm -hmm. the impact that we are interested in when we provide services. So um, the helpline is that place where people phone either because they're questioning whether what's happened to them is is sexual violence, whether sometimes often mm. you would hear people talk about whether they are worthy of, of our time as workers who worked on that helpline or who, who work in big crisis centers or women's aid, like, is this abuse? And the more marginalized you are in our society, the more harder it is for you to get that answer like like a the answer is like is what happened to me abusive because there's this whole intersection of being either trans or non-binary or black or brown or disabled because there are so many other acts of violence that are perpetrated against you on an everyday Mm -hmm. basis and then if sexual violence is part of that abuse is this something that i can seek help for and I, i love the people i worked with on the headline i still have a really really strong relationship with them, I host their pub quiz, uh, twice yearly pub quiz, uh, <laughs> Incredible. and it's real fun. But they are the most wonderful, warmest, kindest women I know. And it is a huge honor to have worked with them. So I used to train people who worked on the headline, but also to know that when anybody who phones, because it's open to anyone, who lives in Scotland to use the helpline, they will be received and held and respected for whatever they're thinking around their experience of sexual violence. It truly is non-judgmental. And when we say, and most services will say that they're non-judgmental, and um, I would believe that they are, but I know that the spaces I, I work in currently in the National Helpline for Scotland is a really non-judgmental space. You will be heard. Um, you will be given time. You will be given space. There will be no pressure on you to report your experience to anybody. Like, you know, there's, sometimes there's this fear, this sometimes survivors, and that's a term we use on the headline or in the crisis movement in Scotland, uh, think that they must report what happened to them. Like, there is no pressure mm. to do that. Sexual violence is a loss of control. And Everything that happens after that in terms of your recovery, only you can control. 
that is your right. I think that's a gift that we must give ourselves if we've experienced sexual violence because the abuser has taken away that control that everything that happens after that should be yours. It's your story. And we recognize that within our services. Um, and that's Aww. what that helpline is like. And in fact, that's what a crisis center is like as well, the one that I work in right now. You know, these are beautiful yeah. spaces. That's so beautiful. Yeah, completely. To not have to be worried that you'll be told what to do or how you should proceed. How you should be even, because you can be however as a survivor. It is your story and only your story. Yes. So much of the trauma is is a narrative. We were talking, I was talking to a friend recently and she was telling me that she had specifically told a man no, and he um, clearly wasn't going to take no for an answer. So she just sort of thought, I'm just going to be into it then because I can't have that be my narrative. Oh, so much of that. She she saw him for a while afterwards and she said, I now realize it's because then my story is the first night was a bit weird, but then I was, it was fine. And I dated him and my story is not, I'm a survivor of, of rape. And because she said, I just couldn't live with it. So I was just like, and she said, but, you know, she gets that PTSD from it. But if you tell that story, if you come out with that story, somebody says, well, if you continue to see him, if you dated him, if you slept with him again, then it wasn't rape. But of course, that isn't the case. So much of trauma is managing the story. Yeah. And when someone gives you that trauma, they say, here's this story to manage. And so one way of managing that story sometimes can be to go, this isn't what happened. Yeah. I'll rewrite it. I'll quickly get on board mm-hmm. because, as you say, someone's taking control from you. And there are many, many, many other ways to control that, blocking it out, have it be something you can't look at sure. or you're, you actually get a memory block sure. from. That There's all sorts of different ways, you know, yes. not being able to work anymore, crying uncontrollably, yeah. being very angry. Um, wanting revenge. There's so many different ways of managing the story, but that's what you're left with. That's what a survivor is left with. They're left with a story that they have to continually tell or reconcile and somehow manage in their daily life. And so the fact that you are there to hear that story on that helpline is everything because there's somewhere to put that story that's anonymous, that is not, you know, sometimes you think I don't, you know, people think I don't want to tell my mum. I don't Mm -hmm. want to give her that story now. I don't trust mm. my dad's response. I don't trust my brother's response. I don't trust my best friend's response. Yeah. I don't want oh my gosh. that person in their mind. I know my place in their story, and I don't want my story to look like this to them. There's so many different ways in which trauma victims need to carry the burden of a story with trauma at its heart and violence at its heart and a perpetrator and a villain in its heart. How did that shift when you went away from the national helpline? So you were, instead of talking to people on phones, you then start managing the Fourth Valley Rape Crisis Centre. I think managing a rape crisis centre takes you a little bit away from that frontline work, but it's so valuable to hold those, those stories, the stories of triumph and recovery. I think it's very important to know that the women's movement in Scotland, and I would say the wider United Kingdom, it has been set up. Its its history lies in survivors. The survivors set up these centers uh, mainly. Uh, we we volunteered. We staff them. So how our services are designed and organized really are 
centered around survivors' voices and survivor experiences. Managing this repressive center is about making sure that the feminist ethos of equality, of inclusion, of love and kindness towards each other, who those of us who work and volunteer there, are central. But then we are functioning in a very patriarchal world. And my main role is to ensure that those feminist ideals are, are maintained. But the reality is that to maintain that, we need money and we need to be sustainable organizations. Uh, we need to be sitting at a table with our various partners and stakeholders and funders who often speak a different language in terms of how they view their role in ending sexual violence. It's often a little bit different to ours. But can yes. I ask what that kind of um what their attitude is like from those those positions of I think there is power. A, like like over the years and certainly right now in Scotland, I think there's a genuine desire and commitment to do better. But then if if you are from the police or the health service or any other big national mm. or the local authority or local council, you're bound by those patriarchal structures because, you know, like those those organizations were not made by women for women or, or people with diverse mm-hmm. gender identities. We just happen to have muscled our way in and but we are still functioning within those patriarchal systems. So their ability to respond in the way that we as rape crisis centers want them to respond, A, give us more money, uh, sustainable funding, be more flexible in how you offer particularly health services and so on. That takes longer. And also, you know, Scotland is a much smaller country to the rest of the United Kingdom. Uh, so I can speak for Scotland. I think we have a much more, in my experience, a much more closer relationship with decision makers than maybe you do in in England, uh, and also you have a more challenging government at Westminster, whereas we have a slightly more left-leaning government here. Really? Um, we hadn't noticed. <laughs> so, so many of my uh, friends have moved to Scotland, like seriously, uh-huh. have gone like we're out of here and they're up in Scotland. And when you guys go independent, uh-huh. there's going to be a lot of English refugees at the border trying to get in. I'm telling you that's <laughs> nothing. Yes, I Probably. I feel like the um, nature of um, those bodies might be the idea of like reducing or like making things go away rather than understanding, trying to understand the complexities of these issues. I think there is, in Scotland certainly, uh, we have a national trauma framework and we have big, big organ public organizations you know, authorities, public bodies trying to make their workforce more trauma-informed and the benefits of that will be felt in the coming years. But to go back to your original question about what is it like to manage, I think there is a real tension between our ambitions of keeping rape crisis centers, inclusive, warm, safe, well-resourced spaces. So the biggest challenge I have is resourcing. So that is funding. That is sustainable. We often victim across, I think this is true across the United Kingdom, to short-term funding. So it's not like rape and sexual violence is going to go away in two years, but yet many of us are funded in a year's contract, two years funding. It's rare 
just see like five, 10 year funding. Wow. Um, and a lot of our funding comes from in Scotland. So we, you know, we, we have much more funding from the, the government and local authority than I would say our sister organizations down in England and Wales. And that is positive, but we have massive waiting lists. Like Edinburgh Rape Crisis Centre's waiting list was closed for a year during the oh. pandemic. Like we were not taking any referrals at all. We are now, and we just received some additional money from the Scottish government to tackle waiting lists. And I think it, it really helps to have a feminist leading a government. Uh, and I think What's that, that like? So, what is that uh-huh, like? Uh-huh. Yeah, tell us more about that. <laughs> so without being party political, I think uh, there are a number of good feminists elected to the Scottish Parliament, including, I would say, the First Minister. If nothing, at least they will listen to you. You have better and easier access mm. to the challenges. And we've had survivors uh, who have had meetings with ministers and their local MSPs and you you actively you see uh, women across parties in the Scottish Parliament you know championing the cause of survivors of gender-based violence but uh, sexual violence is really widely prevalent sexual violence services have been historically underfunded in in Scotland so we are just playing catch-up with our demand and I suppose this is what I'm talking to you about this is the kind of work that someone who manages or leads or a crisis center is having to do. So by being really innovative and making sure that my colleagues uh, have everything that they need, whether it's skills or the emotional space and their own well-being to be able to work with trauma. The other thing is to work to raise the profile of the center. So more survivors come to our center to seek support and know that it is a safe space, particularly for me, what's important is those who are missing in our service user groups. So we have, you know, we are largely mainly used by cis white women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the work ahead is about making sure that those who are marginalized in our society and further away from the cis white heteronormative existence also know that the space is for them. Um, oh, so important. And I think continuing the campaign for more resources, uh, reform of legislation, um, making sure that we don't have to take out a begging bowl everywhere we go. But that really is often a leader's job in the women's movement. I don't think I can have a conversation with anyone without asking for money, which, of course, I will be doing here, too. Uh, <laughs> oh, <for> money. <laughs> so. Sure, sure. Kima, <laughs> yeah. get your wallet out now. A hundred percent. Now look, I'm going to shake it out. There's going to be some stuff in there. A bit of it's going to be lint, but we are going to find some money, baby. (laughs) I believe in that. And I'm sure that the Guilty Feminists can stump up some cash as well, as well as our listeners. Um, Two things you've said have really struck me. One is when you said just being alive is an ambition for a trans woman. Mm -hmm. And I've heard trans women speak this way before, and I know many of our listeners will be feeling like it feels like a punch in the stomach to hear that. It feels like (laughs) physically painful to hear, oh, well, every year I'm alive is a year beyond what my expectation was, that this world is so violent towards trans women. And we know the statistics are there, but also 
sometimes people deny those stats online and they do. Sometimes they say, well, not really because and they, you know, you can make stats say anything. But I think we all anecdotally know that if I'm going to get on a night bus tonight at one in the morning to get home from Soho, I might experience some harassment. I might experience some guys going, oh, shows your tits or, you know, come over here, darling. I might. And I am, as a cis woman, always, um, as all women are, on alert, especially at night, especially alone, you know, but even walking home in the day, I'm just sort of, I'm, I hold onto my bag. I'm just a low level alert at all times, like uh, of the danger. When I come into my flat and there's no one here, I look around in every room, you know, every woman understands this. But I also know if a trans woman who does not pass for cis mm-hmm. and a trans woman never really knows, you know, from my close yes. trans friends who pass for cis, they don't really ever know if they, you know, there's moments where there's a double take or, you know, mm-hmm. and the whole passing for is problematic in itself, but to not yes. get into that, to just stick on this topic of danger and violence in the yeah. world. If a trans woman gets on the bus it's almost impossible on a night bus that there will not be jeering, cheering, catcalling, mm-hmm. weird looks, double takes, whispering, yes. giggling, sneering, sympathetic, nodding looks uh, from progressive people who are trying to kind of be like, but I like trans people. There's not going to be a, a neutral response. And the more dangerous that bus is just because it's full of, you know, drunk people who are beyond the um, – you know, or oh, people are the worst. Yeah, who are sort of out, you know, feel like they're outside the bounds of civility that they would maybe have in the day, or if a place was better lit, or you know, those kinds of uh-huh. things. We know that that jeering and that cheering and that whispering and that giggling can easily escalate into insults, which are structurally yeah. violent, which can easily yeah. escalate into pushing and shoving, which can easily escalate into violence. We've all lived in the world, and we all anecdotally know this that it is much more dangerous journey for a trans woman home at night. That is not undermine or diminish for any of our listeners the dangerous journey you may have had and you may have every night. It doesn't diminish anyone else's journey, but we must admit collectively that it is more likely that a trans woman will come under fire and experience these very structurally violent, constant flicks of eyes and I don't know, oh God, and uh, and aggressive glares, and that that can escalate into physical violence, and that that can escalate into sexual violence quickly. So I just want to say, as the owner of this podcast, I feel I need to say that in this space. I also know that there are many people who are concerned that if trans women can self-identify and come into a refuge, that that may trigger all sorts of things in cis women. Have you come up against this? Yes, I have. If you just Google my name, you will see evidence of what I've been going through for the last two or three years up in Scotland around this issue. Um, I know you described the situation of a night bus, but actually for trans women, even the day is dangerous. And I think it's important to acknowledge that because there is such a social license to be awful to us. And there absolutely is, it really doesn't feel like there is any, any punishment of any, or rebukement or anything, any consequences in most societies of this world, if not all, if you harm a trans person. And that was my experience growing up in India. 
uh, I transitioned in India before I came here. And for the record, I, I, I had, for those who are very interested in my, in, in what happens between my legs, um, because that is, that is what the mythology around me has been created, you know, mm. as a, as a, a woman, trans woman who works in the women's sector mm. is that I don't have a gender recognition certificate. I have never transitioned and usually they want to know if I have a penis or not. Um, all of that happened in India. And if you understood migration, you would know that I don't need a gender recognition certificate because I was a woman when I came here, my paperwork says so. But yes, there are these concerns, uh, misguided and downright dangerous. So between misguided and downright dangerous, there are a whole lot of opinions and feelings about self-identification. I think it's really important for people to hear that trans people self-identified before it was a word in the cis lexicon. Like, I am a trans woman and that is self-identification. But the state has decided to legislate, uh, or hopefully in Scotland, it doesn't look like it's happening in England anytime soon, to change the way we can change our birth certificate. That's all that's happening. But every other experience that we have as trans women, how we, or trans people, more broadly, uh, how we engage with services, how we go about our life, everything works on a self-ID basis. And it's already been working. It is fine. Are there trans people that are dangerous? Yes, there are, just as men can be dangerous and some women can be dangerous. Laws are made and they are broken, but we all know that that will happen. Uh, So to suggest that a few individuals who happen to be trans might abuse legislation or women's spaces doesn't mean that you exclude a whole community. And secondly, Men already harm women because that's who they're really talking about. Men already harm women without going into women's spaces or even if they like they can go into women's spaces if they like. And my argument is that men are already in these women's spaces, like, for example, a rape crisis center or a women's aid, because who is making the decisions about how much money we get? about, you know, who gives us planning permission. It is not women alone. So the argument that women's spaces will be somehow compromised, from my perspective as a strategic thinker, that's already happening because we are functioning in a man's world. But to go into the very specifics about who gets access to these spaces, I think it should be reassuring that Women's services are very private services. We often organize our services, and I can speak to uh, crisis centers in particular, that we organize them in such a way that actually when you use our service, you might never ever see another survivor when you're in our building or in our space, except maybe in our group. So I don't know really what the argument is anymore. I think the argument essentially is from people is that we refuse to see the humanity of trans women in particular as people and we would rather that they are not here at all. Feels like a weird hypothetical fear, like just this lack of understanding and oh ignorance ignorance runs rampant. Yeah. I mean, some of the things that have been thrown at me, I sort of already referenced, but I remember being in a meeting once where there was this 
this person who took the name of some trans woman who, you know, was accused of a crime somewhere in South Asia. And she asked the, you know, the representative of women's organizations, are you going to condemn this trans woman for carrying out an act of, I think it was sexual violence. And I was like, well, I would like to condemn all men who commit acts of sexual violence by name. And I will be here for the end of time. Yeah. Why is it that you've never asked us to do that? You know, as, as women's services. So what is this about? Preach. And when you before referred to men interfering in or getting somehow insidiously into women's spaces, you were referring to the accusation that if people can self-identify that a cisgendered man might go, ah, I identify as a woman to get in the door. <laughs> Presumably that's what you were talking about in terms yes, of... Yes, that is right, yes. because that's what they say. Uh, but also, like, that's how it started. And some might argue that that's what they're trying to protect by not allowing self-identification laws to pass in this country, uh, whether it's England and Wales or Scotland. But actually, if you really listen to them and, and see who has the platform now, essentially what they're saying is that trans women cannot exist. I have lived approximately half my life uh, as a post-transition. And they still, like recently in the last two, three years, people have started calling me a man. But this is what I have to say to them. Like it has no impact on me because even before I transitioned, when I went to an all boys Catholic school in India, no one ever called me a man. So if you think that it's some kind of gotcha, it isn't because, you know, like I've been called every name in the book to harass me. Being a called a man was never one of them. And it does not bother me. So you can fuck right off. It's really um, interesting. So. Heck yeah. I think like the idea of um, men, uh, cis men being like, I'm a woman to gain access to services. I mean, isn't the answer to that to make sure that men have access to services? I don't think that's what they're saying, Kima. They're saying, yes, say, the, vi- they're say saying. the victim of the, or the survivor of the abuse was in the refuge. They're not saying a man who is running from violence is going, I've got nowhere else to go, will you have me? They're saying that the violent husband of a woman who has sought refuge might say, well, you have to let me in because I'm a woman called Dave. Oh, that's absolutely ridiculous. That's ridiculous. But but that's what some of them are saying, because now what are they saying to someone like me is that I have no right to work in these spaces, because no matter what I do, I can never be a woman. Incredible. So it is. it has turned into a sort of whole biological essentialism, and as though there is only one kind of womanhood. But actually, the more adjectives you have before your name, the more different your womanhood. So, you know, like if you are... A trans woman. I am a trans woman of color who happens to be Zoroastrian and Hindu. So all of those adjectives before me define a different type of womanhood. But if you listen to their argument carefully, and I've stopped, thankfully, at the moment, like I, I do not listen to it anymore. Yeah, they say that there's only one kind of womanhood, but there simply isn't. Because mm. I am an Australian adopted, left-handed immigrant woman. Yeah. Like that's a different experience from yes. Kima's. That's a different experience from yes. yours. That's a different experience from mm-hmm. another white woman who might live in my building. Um, yeah. And those experiences are all unique. 
But yeah. I think valid and shouldn't be argued with. Yeah. And I Hilarious. think, you know, some people, and I, I want to address this because I know there'll be some people listening who'll be, ha- you know, having questions and I want to be a good ally and, you know, build bridges. Some people say, oh, I, I feel uncomfortable with that word cis. That's sort of like, oh, now yes. I have to have be cisgendered. And I, hold on, I'm just a woman. I don't want that. And I yeah. will be honest with the listeners and say, when I first heard cisgendered women, or I, I sort of felt the obligation to say it in certain contexts, I felt uncomfortable with it. I'll be absolutely honest. I was like, hold on a minute. Now I'm, I'm changing what I am. Now it needs a little prefix. And then I realized and read up on the word heterosexual. And I realized that before the word homosexual, there was no heterosexual. And homosexual was an invention of around the turn of the century, late 1800s, early, early 20th century. People absolutely, of course, were like, I'm not heterosexual. I'm normal. And, you know, homosexual is the deviance and that's an illness. And I'm just me. I'm just sexual. But because the words heterosexual and straight were around before I was born, they are normal to me. They are completely in my lexicon. They are how, how, well, I don't identify as heterosexual anymore. I identify as bisexual now. But that's part of, you know, that fluidity of going, hold on a minute. And so as soon as I realized that, I was like, this is just a word that wasn't around before you were born. This doesn't take anything from you. And I want to say that I was uncomfortable with it at first because I want people to go, you know, it's okay to be uncomfortable with things and think them through and then go, why am I scared of a word? Like, how does that rob me of anything? Well, as you're building bridges, maybe I should put away the goddess Kali that seems to have emerged as I'm speaking to you. Probably. <laughs> so one of my favorite pictures, if you Google goddess Kali, the first Wikipedia picture, that's often me. I think it's important that there is a group of women that I'm really interested in who are affected by this debate. And I say debate very generously because I don't believe it is. It's not. The debate is when there's a equality of voices and respect. But this is about who has power and who doesn't. But there are a group of survivors who will be watching and seeing what is being played out about spaces that they're potentially going to use and be informed or misinformed about what actually happens here and be possibly be fearful. And I think if you're worried about these things, about inclusion and what trans inclusion means within women's organizations, and if your local women's organization or repressive center or women's aid is openly trans inclusive and you just don't understand, reach out to them and ask those questions. Um, I I think it's important to know that we see you as an individual and we come as survivors with experiences that often feel to the outside world as holding prejudice. So we might have fear of men of a certain ethnicity. We might have fear of of trans people. And and it could be linked to our experience of trauma. I think it, it is it is okay to hold those things as long as you are willing to acknowledge that and support. We will accept that. But there is a difference also in, and I, I'm not sure if I've said this as clearly and transparently as I want to, but I'm trying. Um, so, you know, uh, apologies if I haven't done it well. But I think the other thing is that uh, sexual violence happens to bigoted people as well. And, uh, you know, it is not a discerning crime, but these spaces are also for you. 
But if you bring unacceptable beliefs that are discriminatory in nature, we will begin to work with you on your journey to of recovery from trauma. But please also expect to be challenged on your prejudices because mm -hmm. how can you heal from trauma and build a new relationship with your trauma? Because you can't forget and you can't go back to life before traumatic incident or traumatic incidents. And some of us never ever had a life before traumatic incidents. But if you have to reframe your trauma, I think it is important as part of that reframing, having a more positive relationship with it, where it becomes a story that empowers you and allows you to go and do other more beautiful things with your life. You also have to reframe your relationship with prejudice. Otherwise, you can't really, in my view, recover from trauma. And I think like, that's a very important message that I am often discussing with my colleagues at Enbury Places. Because, you know, to me, therapy is political and it isn't always seen as that. And any time we say one person from this group did this, therefore I can make an assumption about the actions, the future actions of other people who share this identity, that is the definition of prejudice. It's prejudging. It's saying, hey, I had this experience or I saw this on television or I read this in the paper and now I prejudge people of this group as to be more likely to be violent or predators or in some way or another they might hurt me, so I need to exclude them. That is the definition of prejudging or prejudice. You are literally prejudging somebody based on something about their identity that they were born with, that they cannot do anything about. And you cannot glean any information about what somebody will be like based on what somebody else who may have shared one characteristic with this person, but no others. And that is really, really important. Trans women are more likely to experience violence. They're more likely to turn up to refuge as vulnerable and also fearful of what their response might be to them at the refuge. More likely, but, you know, like, I don't think they do because of the environment we live in. Like, the, the you know, while everybody else is questioning whether trans women should be in the space, but actually trans women have been questioning whether we are entitled to the space much before Everyone was asking whether we, we can actually be there. So Sorry, I didn't the, mean, I apologize. I didn't mean more yes. likely to turn up. I meant yes. if they turn up, yeah. they're more likely to be vulnerable and, yes. and fearful of their response. Because if I turned up to a refuge, a women's refuge in the middle of the night going, I've just had this terrible experience, my expectation would be you would say, oh, please come in, we'll take care of you. But I can imagine being trans and thinking, I've, you know, I know what people say and I know that, you know, maybe this will be an inclusive space for me and maybe it won't. Maybe they'll say, get out of here. And so this violence will be compounded by more structural violence. Absolutely. We need a massive rethink as a society. And feminism needs a big old rethink on this because if we are not there to protect the most vulnerable members of our group, what are we there for? As you said before, Maridle, there is a social license to treat trans people very badly, to rule them out of employment, to speak in rude ways about them and to them for street harassment. There's a social license. We need to revoke that license. It is the job of feminism to revoke that license and to step up and step forward and say, 
These people are our sisters. These people are our siblings. And we need trans people to be protected. And we take that first step today. And if we have some discomfort because of the power structures that raised us and that evolved us and evolved our thinking that are in themselves structurally violent, then we need to do that work on ourselves to get more comfortable with doing the right thing and protecting kind people who want a break and need, desperately need a break from our society. I think it's a moment to check your privilege. And I think um, we've gotten to an interesting place in society where we're acknowledging the structural inequalities that women face across the board. And I think it's a struggle for some people to acknowledge that someone's had to face something perhaps even more challenging than you have. Because my life is the hardest. Um, <laughs> and I think it's such a cop-out. It's, uh, it's, I think we just have to do better across the board. And I know you were saying kind people, but also mean people. Mean trans people deserve care too. Bitter trans people deserve care. <laughs> I do think we need to get these conversations <laughs> off Twitter and into rooms as soon as possible. I think, you know, Mariddle, hearing your voice and looking into your eyes, it's very, very difficult to ha not have your humanity, to one's humanity, the, the, the listener's humanity, provoked. And on Twitter, when you've got these 280 characters and it's so flammable, and recently there was a really uh, violent, threatening tweet to JK Rowling. And I was like, this isn't helping and it's not right. And I don't want that. And this is not to say that I don't understand how someone might be provoked to anger if society continues to not listen to their trauma. I really... But I want to say, I want to get these conversations off Twitter because I think when we look into each other's eyes, and I understand that may be very vulnerable for a lot of trans people, and I'm not suggesting for a second trans people put themselves in rooms with mm -hmm. people who they fear because they've said structurally violent things. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying allies, if you are an ally, please find a way to build a bridge. And if you meet a transphobic person who is actively, if, if you meet somebody who's just going, I don't know about this, take the time to talk to them. If you, and, and make arguments. If you meet somebody who goes, ah, these things bother me, take the time to talk to them. Do your research. Don't just go educate yourself. You're an ally. Trans people can mm -hmm. do that. You cannot do that. Stand and in the gap. If you meet someone who is actively, angrily transphobic and saying very overtly violent things, please, can I ask this? When you leave that person, leave that person at least no more transphobic than when you met them online or off. Don't provoke and stoke that and pile on in a way that gives them ammunition because you are not a trans person. This is not your anger. This is not your oppression. Your job is to build a bridge. And if you can see you will never build a bridge with this person, then obviously stand an ally and protect a trans person if they are piling on. But if you start flaming it and flaming it and flaming it, you create a bigger community and a bigger army for them. So please don't do that. Please use this podcast and the words of Meridal to build bridges and win people over because I do think it is simply a matter of activating people's humanity. And I think the vast majority of people are good, compassionate people whose humanity can be ignited quickly. 
Allyship is hard to work. I, I think that's such an important thing to acknowledge is that like, like ally, like that's a verb, you know? Like a lot of people want to treat it as a noun or something to stick on a t-shirt, but it's a verb and it's difficult and it can be awkward if you're not used to having conversations like that. But it's important to remember that I would say it's important to remember that your life is not on the line, but your life is on the line. Our humanity is on the line. You know, the soul of this planet is on the line. And injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere, you know? And so we have to stand for each other and with each other. If you're looking for another episode of The Guilty Feminist to give you ideas for how you might talk to people who are currently you know, trying to figure this stuff out from a genuine place, then there, I, we did an episode with Travis Alabanza and Kachenga that's absolutely amazing. Oh, my um, gosh. So yeah. listen up to these episodes and then have a think about how you might talk to people in your community circle about this and even broach the subject with people because it's really easy to just go, I, don't, I want to avoid this. And I've talked to a few people recently go, I just don't talk about it at all because it's too flammable. And I'm like, I don't think that's making life better. Mm-mm. for trans women getting on buses or trying to get jobs. Yeah. That's your job as an ally. You need to make it safer to get on buses and easier to get jobs. So is what you're doing, is the conversations you're having, is it going to make the person you're talking to more likely to employ a trans person or less? Is it going to make them more glary at a trans person on a bus or turning their cold shoulder at a party or less? And that is always the metric by which you should ally, in my opinion. I know it's hard sometimes. I know you feel angry sometimes. I know you get inflamed sometimes, but your job is not to pile on and push that person into a place of further transphobia and ignite people around them to close ranks and go, hey, you're being so mean. I think we're going to set up this anti-trans community over here. That is not Mm. your job. And can I add, like, if you're a lazy ally, give Edinburgh places your money. Mm -hmm. That's fine too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you don't, <laughs> if you feel like what you're about to say is about to cause some harm, why don't you donate some money? <laughs> or, or if you're just going, oh, oh, oh I, I, I feel busy. Um, yeah, please. No, I, I, I think it is the way forward. Conversations, and I mean, they have been happening. Um, I've been part of a few, but I think I've had enough as a, as a champion for the moment. Um, you know, there's more to my life. But but yeah, no, I think it's absolutely vital because you know we're such a small community, and yet there is such a disproportionate focus on our existence at the moment in the UK and probably in most other parts of the world. It's psychotic. Um, Like just leave us alone um, and give us the few things that we're asking for: Mm -hmm. better healthcare, the ability to change our birth certificate without a bunch of probably men deciding on a panel whether I'm woman or man enough to get a different birth certificate, like the birth certificate of, of who I, that says who I am. Uh, like, these are small things. Uh, don't make me wait for two or three years for my first appointment at a gender identity clinic. Abolish gender identity clinics. Why mm. can we not access healthcare in primary healthcare settings as trans people? Like, there are better and different ways. And there are lots of trans activists who can speak to this much better than me. Um, you know, until recently, uh, actually until 2015, I didn't really talk about my 
transness in a in a sort of public way. I got given this award and then I was like, oh my God, now I have to talk about it. Most of my conversations are about immigrant women and uh and uh no recourse to public funds and how we need to abolish it. Because you know, Deborah, you were saying about you would turn up at a refuge and people would just take you in. But if Kima turned up, they wouldn't. Like those, that same refuge would probably want to see her passport and her immigration status. You know, um, what if she hadn't flirted with the dodgy guy in the passport office? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like what, that is also a reality. Like there are so many groups who will be denied these services because of who they are. You know, that should go. We really need to abolish no recourse to public funds. Um, I hear you. Is there anything, Maridal, we can do to make it more likely in Scotland or in England and Wales and Northern Ireland that migrant women can access services? Yes, I think um, certainly in Scotland, while there are some real challenges with having no recourse to public funds. So I don't know if people will know what that is, but essentially if you're subject to immigration control, um, then usually if you were from outside of the EU, it would be stamped on your biometric residence permit. It would say very clearly it's a bit more ambiguous and confusing now for people from the EU who are living here. But essentially that means that you as an individual cannot access housing benefit or any other benefit, including child benefit, even if your child is British. And those are things that you need to recover or to get life restarted in a way if you're fleeing an abusive relationship. Um, but in Scotland, there are sections of the Children's Scotland Act, the Social Work Act, that allow local authorities to support families, particularly families with children, women with children, or anybody, actually not just women, anyone with children who needs support from the state because they've been rendered homeless uh, or destitute uh, because of domestic abuse or any other reason, actually, uh, and need help from the state. So that's the way around. And I think we need to pressure our local councillors, our MSPs, our Scottish MPs. And, you know, there will be similar exemptions in England and Wales and different pieces of legislation where local authorities can step in and offer support when people are destitute. Good support, support that allows people to get back on their feet or maybe even you know, if they wish to, because, you know, but of course, immigration is not a holiday, as some people would like us to believe that you can just pack up and go back to where you came from. Definitely not that. Uh, But if they wish to, if that's what they want for themselves, then at least so that is able to be done safely. But the best thing and the easiest and the cheapest thing that any state can do is to give migrants equal rights as all citizens, as all residents. So if we enshrine access to public services as rights given to residents, as opposed to citizens of a nation, we will be a much healthier, happier place. So write to your MP and tell them to campaign to abolish no recourse to public funds. It will make things easier, safer, better, Mm -hmm. and actually cheaper for the state because it is more expensive uh, to try and resolve problems that really have simple solutions, but you have to find complex methods to get the same amount of 20 quid of child benefit. Like if you could mm-hmm. just get child benefit and save the the hours and hours that women's aid workers, rape crisis workers, social workers are often 
Mm. you know, spending, trying to get bits of money so that people are safe and can leave abusive, violent situations when they want to. Maridal, can I ask, where can we give money? Where, what are you looking for here, money-wise? Because it's coming a few times. <laughs> so um, what am I looking for? A lot of money. So oh. it costs just over a million pounds a year uh, to operate Edinburgh Crisis Centre. And if we don't have to have a waiting list, that figure almost doubles. Um, so you need two million quid is what you're saying. Uh, yeah, so yes. if anyone out there is listening and going, I've got two million quid. <laughs> really? but, but actually every penny counts. Uh, you know, the, the smallest of donations uh, counts. And if you don't want to give to Edinburgh Crisis because you don't have a connection to the city, but if you've ever come to the fringe, maybe you should give us some money. Um, mm-hmm. But there are rape crisis services and women's aid services across the length and breadth of this country. Uh, they need your support. And actually, whatever you decide to give, if you can make it a regular donation, it is really, really valuable to us to have, a, even if it's a small but steady income, it helps with planning, it helps with recruitment. So it even helps if we can give you a quid a month or a five quid a month or something like yes. that, it's, yeah, it's going to be absolutely. a big help. Like we have a friend's, become a friend of Edinburgh Crisis and our suggested donation is three pounds a month. We have a book that survivors have written called Rising Free. Uh, we self-published it before before my time, like my predecessor and the team self-published it. It's a really beautiful book um, and it's, it's for survivors. So it's uh, called Rising Free. And if you would let me, I would like to read from that. Oh, yes. Oh, incredible. And it's called The Sisterhood of Solace. It's a tiny poem written by a survivor who I'll just call her Elle by the book to find out who she is. The Sisterhood of Solace was born from the stars. They share untold memories and invisible scars. They dance and sway defiantly in the rain. The melody of their voices soothes away their pain. Weaving unspoken bonds in the dark, Igniting in each other an encouraging spark. Tearing down reservations and rebuking the status quo. Warriors fighting for change, for the current laws to go. They wear their unabashed vulnerability with pride. Laugh as they weather the storms at high tide. Their tears burn fiercely from their blazing eyes. The sisterhood of solace is coming. See them rise. Ooh. Oh, that's, that's gorgeous. I got goosebumps from that riddle. Thank you so, so much. That's rising free. Rising free. Can be ordered by via Rape Edinburgh Prices. It's not being sold anywhere else at the moment. Maridal, we'd love to buy that. And what's the website that we could go to to so, buy it? Um, just Edinburgh Crisis Centre. If you just Google us, you'll find us. And I'll send you some links for your show notes. Okay. Well, thank Gorgeous. you so much. There, there'll be links in the show notes. Buy that book. If you can afford to give three quid a month, they'd really appreciate it and would make a big, big difference. Also find a rape crisis centre in your neighbourhood and see in what ways they need your support and help. Riddle, is there anything you came to say that you didn't get to say? Um, wear saris. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wear a sari. It's cultural appropriation. 
Ah, it's beautiful. Who cares? Merida, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to so get us arrested. You heard uh. this from Meridal. If you see me in a sari, she you told know me. What she, happened. she literally gave it to me and made me wear it. It would be an insult not to. She forced it into her hands <laughs> over Zoom. Over my shoulder. <laughs> like, see, Thank I, you so I much. own a few hundred saris. They're oh. almost all secondhand or inherited. I never wash them because I don't need to. It's the greenest yeah. thing you can do. Wear oh. saris. Change right. this nation. Okay. All right. Well, listen, if maybe, maybe if we all did it under Riddle's guidance, somehow it would be, uh, it would be a sustainability issue. There's no need to watch them. Kima, Bob, do you have anything to plug? Just uh, wear afros? No, don't do that. Don't do that. Cornrows, dreadlocks. Yes, yes. Oh, this has taken a turn, this, this episode. People were like, moved. They were with us, and now, and now you got us cancelled at the last minute. Um, nothing, nothing too much other than the Films of Color Comedy Club. Always, uh, it's a platform that um, centers women and trans comedians of color. Um, and I just feel like the more support we can get behind it, the bigger it can grow. I want to see the Films of Color Comedy Club. I want to see it set up around the world. You know. And so we're on Instagram and Twitter and we share the live events that we do in London and around the UK. But keep an eye out because we're going to be coming to you, baby. Amazing. Um, Femmes of Colour, get in there. Get Maybe Femmes of Colour at some point could do a, um, <gasps> a, a benefit for the Edinburgh Rape Crisis Centre. Yes. That would be lit, actually. So cool. I mean, or people who are going to perform at Edinburgh Rape Crisis can and promote us and raise money. Maybe next 100%. year. 100%. Maybe I can produce that for you. That would be yeah. so cool. This year, um, I'm avoiding Lefrange and the extortionate yeah. prices. I think we could put something really cool together for 2022. Yeah, agreed. Cool. Can I just say, Brittle, you have been a truly wonderful guest and thank you Such for being with us. And thank you. I hope you'll have me back. Oh, please. <laughs> Next time we're in Edinburgh at the festival, you need to come on and tell us how everything's going. Oh yes, my god! I would love to. It's you keeping to my job. I don't have to resign anymore because I've been on the guilty feminist. Hey! Bill, <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. That's hilarious. <laughs> You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Kima Bob, and our very special guest, Maridal Wadwa. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Solitsky for the spontaneity shop. Thanks to Rachel Craftman, Gina Decio, and everyone else who made this episode happen, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe because it helps other people find the podcast. You can take yourself off mute because laughing's good. We like laughing. Okay. Unless, okay. But if it's not funny, please don't. No, don't. No. Yeah, but if you oh, sorry. it's funny. Deborah. Oh, no. I'm a feminist. I think my internet is betraying us all. Oh.